0: Burning Books with Eric Beck Rubin.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. We're into the anti penultimate episode of the two trilogy or not two trilogy season and so far we've gone through volumes of trilogies by Richard Ford, Amitav Ghosh, Elena Ferrante, and Pat Barker, with Josip Novakovich and Roddy Doyle still to come. Today we're looking at Ford Maddox Ford, no relation to Richard or any of the other Fords, as his name was actually Ford Maddox Heufer. He changed it during the war. The trilogy is called Parade's End, and today we're going to talk about the first volume, Some Do Not, which was published in 1924. My approach to Ford Max Ford comes via a book I recall as being among the best I ever read, and it's the one most closely associated with his name. That novel was The Good Soldier, published in 1917. Varyingly described as the first Impressionist novel, a term meant to evoke its painterly counterparts, and the first novel with an unreliable first-person narrator, what I can say about The Good Soldier is that, first or not in either of these, or any other category, It is a supreme example of a story that unfolds on water, not solid ground. Not that the naive reader, and I was a naive reader when I first read it, would notice this until well into the book, and that's the point. You don't know that John Dowell, the narrator of The Good Soldier, is hysterically self-deluded from the outset. You take him, or at least I took him, as solid, staid, lapidary, and many other words describing a self-restricting, unemotional, upper-class gentleman. I made a typical reader's error, conflating the narrator with the author, even if I hardly knew anything about Ford-Maddox Ford himself. If I'm being honest, the photo on the back cover of the Penguin Great Books of the 20th Century Edition, which shows Ford-Maddox Ford as a pale, slightly sweaty, unprepossessing man, was what made the author look like the incarnation of his character, John Dowell. Ford Maddox-Ford, though, knowing the reader's tendency to conflate author and narrator, and assuming his audience's trust in the narrator's frankness, takes full advantage of the reader's credulousness, and we're off. The story that ensues is, quote, the saddest story, unquote, as the narrator promises, with that word, saddest, taking on the full weight of its melodramatic and metaphysical implications. It's a simple enough story of marital infidelity and deceit, but the way it's told is amazing. The first three sections of this five-section book are, as Ford Maddox Ford once professed, perfect. Having said this, I could hardly expect more perfection from this author as I turned to his trilogy, Parade's End. For one, I knew Ford's output was prolific. Fiction, non-fiction, co-writing novels with Joseph Conrad editing a journal that introduced many of the new prose and poetry voices of the early 20th century, while also writing memoirs and a literary historical survey, The March of Literature. As prolific as Ford was, I also knew, by reputation, that this work was uneven. People really do like Parade's End, and as I'm getting into a trilogy fix, I thought to myself, now would be a good time to get into this book. Some do not the first installment of Parade's End, introduces the protagonist, one Christopher Teachins, a member of what Ford describes as England's quote, public official class, unquote.
0: The youngest son of a Yorkshire country gentleman, Teachins himself was entitled to the best, the best that first-class public offices and first-class people could afford. So he could afford to be negligent of his attire, of the company he kept, of the opinions he uttered. He had a little private income under his mother's settlement a little income from the imperial department of statistics he had married a woman of means and he was in the tory manner sufficiently a master of flouts and jeers to be listened to when he spoke
1: in other words he's more or less benign possibly friendly possibly interesting but not especially any of these things toff a bureaucrat one of the cogs in the big wheel that was the empire Teachins was more self-important than important, but vaguely aware of this, and therefore forgivable. He's playing a role, he knows this, and would be playing it well, but for one small detail. That wife of means that he married? She's abroad.
0: With another man.
1: He would be upset, you'd think. He certainly wouldn't be pleased about it. But in a typically Fordian way, he is untethered from his inner life. That's right, he's even more of a caricature of an Englishman of a certain class than we had first realized.
0: And indeed, his wife's flight had left him almost completely without emotions that he could realize. And he had not spoken more than 20 words at most about the event.
1: 20 words, man, get a hold of yourself. Ford, it would seem in these early pages, is having fun with the cartoon he has drawn, the caricature of the repressed Yorkshireman's son, the emotionally mute bureaucrat who later describes his thoughts as too filthy a picture to contemplate. Indeed, Ford is clear that Teachin stands for an entire class, and describing this exemplar and, therefore, the entire class, comprises the early work of the first chapter of this book. But as Ford meticulously builds up the details of this class, the reader is always aware of the thing that looms in the very close future for Teachins and his kind. That would be the war that we think or we expect will tear up this entire world from the roots so as a reader we assume that the inner life being repressed by this character will eventually explode and all the more spectacularly when the strictures that have bound teachings to this point society culture class are suddenly cut loose by this enormous cataclysm the war to end all wars and we will go on expecting this and assuming it will happen and waiting for it to occur And we will go on waiting, and waiting. In the meantime, the fine balance of sympathy and parody that Ford uses to introduce teachings veers into clubby jokes, chummy jokes, in-jokes, and actually non-jokes. The kind of thing that, with the passage of time and on the far side of the Atlantic, no longer hold much meaning. Let me give you an example. To set the scene, it's a game of golf. Tietjens is playing a Mr. Sandbach, and the game has been interrupted by two suffragettes who have run onto the fairway. Sandbach is furious. Tietjens is, as always, apparently unmoved.
0: Mr. Sandbach refused to continue his match with Tietjens. He said that Tietjens was the sort of fellow who was the ruin of England. He said he had a good mind to issue a warrant for the arrest of Tietjen's for obstructing the course of justice. Tietjen's pointed out that Sandbach wasn't a borough magistrate and so couldn't. And Sandbach went off, dot and carry one, and began a furious row with the two city men who had retreated to a distance. He said they were the sort of men who were like the ruin of England.
1: That short expression, dot and carry one, The not particularly clever or funny repetition about men with whom Sandbag disagrees being the ruin of England, it's fine to sprinkle this kind of thing into the story, but in Some Do Not, it's not sprinkled, it's poured, and it's flooding the text. And there's no more recurring symbol of this failure to communicate than the ellipsis, the three periods, that first appear in the title of the book, Some Do Not, and which become a permanent addendum to Teachin's and most other characters, dialogue.
0: Tichin said, wouldn't it be better, sir, if you said what you had on your mind? Dot, dot, dot. The old general blushed a little. I don't like to, he said straightforwardly. Dot, dot, dot. I only want, my dear boy, to hint that dot, dot, dot. Tichin said, a little more stiffly, I'd prefer you to get it out, sir. Dot, dot, dot.
1: I kid not when I say that in this dialogue-heavy book almost every line of speech includes one of these maddening ellipses. On the other hand, of course, failure to communicate is kind of the point of this story. It is Teachin's inability to communicate with others and with himself that leads him down and further down in his social circle. But can failure to communicate stunt the development of a novel? I would never say that a stylistic or formal strategy can or cannot achieve a particular goal, because it's always possible that the imaginative and creative writer can spin something amazing out of any constriction. It's what George Parekh and others from Ulipo did when they used constrictions, indeed many more forceful constrictions than Ford did, to produce new dimensions for the novel. But as radical as Ford-Maddox Ford could be, for instance, in a novel like The Good Soldier, he doesn't come close to surmounting his own obstacles, and some do not. In this book, while the failure to communicate exemplifies the key problem for the main character, it also stunts the development of that character, and the development of the story around him. At a certain point, the meaning in those ellipses is no longer suggested or implied, or given over to the inferences of the reader, it's just lost. When one character says to another,
0: the curse of the world,
1: dot, 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 and the other answers, ah, dot, 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 it's just, why bother writing these lines in the first place? Why bother reading this blur of dialogue? You're saying nothing, I'm understanding nothing. To quote Hamlet, it's all just words, words, words. The so-called love story that eventually drives the plot forward in the sense of a dead mule collapsing on a cart, causing it to move a few inches in one direction, the outcome of that so-called love story is so telegraphed that it's whatever technology preceded the telegraph. It's the suffragette, whom we met earlier, who is the object of Teachin's affections. She returns to the plot, and Teachin's has a choice to make. He loves her, she loves him, Teachin's wife hates Teachin's, dot dot dot, but the suffragette is of a lower class, dot dot dot, conundrum.
0: The night before, Titions had given several thoughts to this young woman. Upon occasion, and given the right woman, quite sound men have done such things. But that he should have ruined himself over an unnoticeable young female who had announced herself as having been a domestic servant, and wore a pink cotton blouse, dot dot dot, that had seemed to go beyond the bounds of even the unreason of club gossip.
1: Yep, Titions, just defer the inevitable. It's not like this book has anywhere to go in the meantime we'll just wait another 200 or so pages for you to figure it out. In the meantime, war will begin. Teachings will be deployed. He'll be stubborn and stupid, and all his friends will disown him, plus other things, dot dot dot. The problem is, not one of these things hits the reader with any weight. Everything in this novel sort of floats away into insignificance, like those ellipses, which is, in a sense, how the story ends, and certainly how this review will end. This doesn't turn me off it by any means. It it just makes me think I've got to look for other avenues. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Josip Novakovich's Three Deaths, which I'll say right now was effing amazing. There's a reason he was nominated for the International Man Booker Prize. Burning Books is part of the Litopia Network of Podcasts, and you can hear back episodes. Subscribe and reach me there via the email the show button. All by going to Litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. And if you're on Facebook, I can be reached at Facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. My thanks to Hakan Özkan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program.
0: The second word is aluminum. Aluminum
1: always go. Chase.